Hello and welcome to the third episode in our UK competition litigation podcast series. I'm Serena Williams, a partner in the Linklater's dispute resolution practice in London, and today's topic is the rise of collective actions in the UK. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague James Hanna and by someone we see frequently on the opposite side of the courtroom, Leslie Hanna of Hausfeld LLP. Leslie is heavily involved in lots of the major UK competition collective actions and has kindly agreed to join us to provide key insights from the claimant perspective. So, first things first, James, what are we actually talking about? What do we mean by collective actions? Thanks, Serena. So, at a high level, collective actions are procedures which allow a large number of claimants with claims sharing lots of common characteristics to seek a remedy against the same defendant, or in some cases, multiple defendants. Now, in England and Wales, the scope for claimants to bring collective actions has historically been quite limited. However, as we'll discuss in this podcast, Recent developments mean that collective actions, and particularly the ability of claimants to bring US-style class actions in the competition damages space, are becoming quite a big deal. I think it's probably worth us giving a bit of a flavour of the different procedures available to claimants to seek competition-related damages on a collective basis. Uh, So historically, claimants could use one of the two procedures provided by Civil Procedure Rule 19. The first of those is to apply for a group litigation order, which is an order made by the court to provide for the case management of claims which give rise to common or related issues of fact or law. The fact of the claim is publicised and a group register is established onto which claims issued by individual claimants are entered. So those claims are opt-in. The second is what we call a CPR 19.6 representative action. For those claims, the court may direct that where more than one person has the same interest in a claim, that claim may be commenced or continued by one or more of those persons as representatives of any other person who has that interest. Any order of the court is binding on all persons represented in the claim, so that is effectively an opt-out proceeding. More commonly, though, claimants would use joint case management. That means that claimants would bring their claims individually, but then apply to the court for similar claims to be case managed and potentially go to trial together. There has, though, been an evolution of collective actions for competition claims specifically. Leslie, welcome. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Thank you, and thanks very much for inviting me to participate. Um, Well, believe it or not, actually, collective actions have been around for much longer than you might anticipate. Um, For competition claims, the Enterprise Act in 2002 introduced Um, a provision which allowed specified bodies, so essentially representative organisations, to bring an action on behalf of two or more consumers in the competition appeal tribunal. So a form of opt-in collective action um, where they had suffered loss or damage and where it related to consumer goods or services. Now, the reason we don't know much about it is because only one action was ever brought under that particular provision. And that was an action brought by which the Consumers Association in 2007, who brought an action concerning the purchase of replica football shirts for consumers, by consumers, um, which had found to be the subject of a price fixing agreement um, by the Office of Fair Trading. Now, in 2015, those provisions were replaced by um, the current collective actions regime, which allows for both opt-in and opt-out collective actions. 
Those cases allow for um, actions to be commenced by a member of the affected class or by a class representative who isn't a member of the affected class. There are some pretty strict rules around the regime itself and a, an action may only um, progress to trial where it's considered just and reasonable um, for the class representative to act on behalf of the class members and where the CAT deems the claims to be suitable to be brought as collective proceedings. Now, as I said, they can be either opt-in or opt-out to collective proceedings. And it's this latter um, form of bringing proceedings that is particularly important, because what that means is that damages can be awarded to a large class of affected individuals without them needing to take any formal steps to join the claim at, at the initial stage. And I think it would be fair to say, Leslie, that the CPA regime was pretty slow to get off the ground with the CAT rejecting the first two applications in the mobility scooters case and the interchange case brought by Walter Merricks. Uh, but Mr Merricks was not to be denied. Uh, and after the case working its way up to the Supreme Court, uh, where we got a key judgment in December 2020, uh, it's now been certified by the CAT. Uh, Leslie, there's been a lot of discussion about the Supreme Court's judgment in the Merricks case and the impact on the collective regime more generally. Uh, in particular, I think a suggestion that it has lowered the bar for collective actions to be to be certified. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that's a fair analysis? Well, I'm not sure it's fair to say that the Supreme Court lowered the bar. Um, I think both the Act itself and the rules of the Competition Appeal Tribunal didn't set a hugely high threshold in the first place. Um, ultimately, um, the rules and of the CAT provide that the claims must be eligible for inclusion in collective proceedings. Um, and that means they have to raise the same similar or related issues of fact or law, and they have to be suitable to be brought as collective proceedings. And it seems that the, the Supreme Court essentially was, was considering um, whether the Merrick's case itself satisfied those those two criteria, and it focused on whether in those they were suitable for an award of aggregate damages. And really, uh, that's essentially interpreting the law as it always has been. Um, aggregate damages means that the remedy is calculated by way of loss to the class as a whole, but that it need not be calculated by reference to the loss suffered by each individual member of the class, which seems to me to be the point of bringing opt-out collective proceedings. It's not necessary for damages to be calculated by reference to the losses suffered by each individual member of the class. Now, the CAT has a discretion as to how aggregate damages are distributed. Um, and uh, when the Supreme Court was considering that matter in, in the Merrick's decision, and determining whether the claims were suitable. It essentially was looking at the, the standard rules of tort, which provided that essentially damages must be calculated on the best evidence that's available. And that might mean in certain instances that the court has to rely upon um, the best estimates, uh, including assumptions and approximations. And really what it confirmed was that those principles apply equally to collective proceedings as they do to any other form of damages claim. And Leslie, I mean, one thing that the, the Supreme Court judgment went into a lot of detail about, and, and there was a, confli a conflicting views between the majority and minority judgments, were what the actual test is that needs to be applied by the CAT. So the, the majority found that you need to consider um, 
whether the claim is suitable for collective proceedings as opposed to individual proceedings, uh, a test with which the minority disagreed. Do you think that that has moved us away from the position that, um, you know, we as an industry thought, thought should be applied previously? I do. I, I mean, I think it's right that when you are, um, when a claim is deemed suitable for collective proceedings, that it's appropriate to be assessing the level of damages that should be awarded in respect of the competition law infringement by reference to the loss suffered as the class by the class as a whole. Um, I think, you know, I, I think it has come out in the recent boundary fairs decision that may result in there being differences within the class as to um, how much loss individual members have suffered. But that's an issue really for distribution. And I don't think that is an issue um, that goes to whether a claim should be certified or not. It simply goes to how do you um, distribute damages at the end of the case when that damages sum has been awarded by the court. Um, and that would mean that somebody, for example, who has made multiple journeys, um, a season ticket card holder, um, who's made multiple journeys out with um, the boundaries of that season ticket and would have been entitled to those boundary tickets may have a larger damages award at the end of the day when it's distributed than somebody who has not made as many of those types of journeys. Um, I guess one thing that will be really interesting is to see what the cat does in a case where you have um, a large institutional direct purchaser as opposed to a, a consumer bringing the claim. Um, we haven't seen that uh, at all yet, um, but we you know, might get decisions in the trucks and the FX cases later this year. Just, just to look at where we are at the moment, though, we obviously had the Merrick's decision um, and only a month after that, we got certification of uh, a, a second CPO, which uh, was Justin Laputerel uh, for a damages claim against BT. Um, and most recently, as you've already mentioned, Leslie, the, the CAT has certified two further classes in the boundary fares cases. Going from the standing start that we really had from when the regime was introduced in 2015 to now having had these, these four proceedings certified, um, I guess from your perspective on the claimant side, Leslie, you know, to what extent is the, the claimant and funding community taking heart from these decisions? Well, um, I think it's fair to say that the unlocking um, of, of the regime has, has been very positive because there were a number of cases that um, were sort of sitting in the wings waiting for clarification of the rules in a number of respects by the tribunal. And, you know, obviously these claims are the types of claims that require third party litigation funding. Um, and so the, the greater availability of that due to sort of increased confidence, I think that the regime um, is progressing in the right direction will definitely make it um, more likely that we'll see more of these claims brought in the future. I think it was really positive that um, these claims have now got, um, as you say, three certification decisions. It's really promising that the, the progress of these claims is speeding up a little bit. Um, in particular, the Le Paterel claim against BT, which you referred to earlier, that was only issued in January this year um, and heard in June with the certification ruling given in September. So that suggests that actually we can see these claims progressing a little bit faster, particularly where they're brought on a standalone basis. So where they're not, they're not relying on a regulatory decision. Um, and so that is that's definitely a very helpful precedent.
Uh, and of course, it wouldn't be a Linklater's podcast if um, if I let Leslie had have the last word on that. So I, I guess, James, from a defendant's perspective, what do you think the recent spate of, of decisions means for us? So, I mean, I, I don't think I can disagree with Leslie that the landscape now looks um, quite claimant friendly and you know, un unsurprising there, perhaps, to hear Leslie say that she thinks the Supreme Court, court has in interpreted the law absolutely bang on correctly. I'll, um, I'll reserve my own position on that. But, but I think um, going forward, um, what we will all see is defendants continuing to be defendants and a well-advised defendant in these cases. Um, we'll see it as their job to continue to chip away at the claim wherever the claim is looking vulnerable. Um, and the first stage in that process for a for a, um, a, a cat collective action is at the certification stage. Um, and one of the points that often gets missed on on the Merrick certification is that uh, Mastercard actually won on the two main contested points at the certification hearing. Um, those points being whether dead people could be included in the class um, and that the class couldn't claim for compound interest. So I think you will continue to see defendants taking those kinds of points just to chip away at the claim at that stage. And of course, all the usual um, hurdles will continue to be thrown up by uh, defendants thereafter, um, whether that be you know preliminary issues, strikeout applications or, or what have you. Um, so I think there is still plenty of fertile ground for, for defending these claims, um, albeit the certification now looks um, a little easier than, than perhaps we had hoped on this side of the table. Yeah, and I mean, I guess from, a, from the funding perspective, one aspect of the BT judgment that really stood out to me was this idea that because every member of the class is identifiable by BT, BT could pay any damages directly to their account or put money just back onto their cards. Um, I'm quite curious to see how the funding community deals with that, uh, given that they, of course, like uh, to see lower take up uh, of any damages so that they can take a cut of any undistributed damages. So uh, I guess we'll see how how that case develops. One point we should probably touch on is whether we are seeing a more general policy shift towards collective actions in light of uh, you know the Merrick's decision, the recent certification decisions and the Court of Appeals decision in Lloyd and Google. James, what, what, what do you think? So my answer to that is yes, I think we are seeing a policy um, shift in favour of collective actions, um, but we may or may not be about to see kind of the first um, real test as to whether we're starting to meet the limits of that policy shift. Um, as you say, Serena, in, in Lloyd and Google. Now, Lloyd and Google is a data privacy case rather than a competition case. So it's, it's maybe worth a, a brief bit of background in case there are listeners who are unfamiliar with it. Um, Mr. Lloyd is a former director of which, and he launched a representative action under CPR 19.6 against Google seeking damages for loss of control of personal data on behalf of more than 4 million um, iPhone users. Now, at first instance, he was denied permission to serve out of the jurisdiction on the basis that the claim for a uniform amount of damages was an artificial and unprincipled device. Um, and importantly, also that the claimants did not all have the same interest in the claim, which is the, the fundamental test under 19.6 to get a representative action off the ground. Now that decision was overturned by the Court of Appeal, which amongst other things said that uh, Mr. Lloyd um, accepted that damages should be based 
on a, a lowest common denominator approach such that the court could find that the claimants all have the same interest and the claim could therefore be brought as a representative action. Um, that was then uh, appealed to the Supreme Court um, and we are still awaiting the Supreme Court's judgment, which everyone is expecting any day now. Um, very hard to say whether where the Supreme Court will come out on that, but we're all watching with bated breath. Um, and you know, if, if it goes in favour of Mr Lloyd, then um, certainly I think we'll, we'll continue to see that policy shift in favour of collective actions. But if it goes against him, I think we will we'll be starting to see the limits of that shift. And I guess if it does go against him, um, we'll be seeing claimants find innovative ways of bringing those types of claims. Um, and some might say that actually the the boundary bears cases were already an indication of that being very consumer protection focused uh, rather than strictly competition law focused. Um, I think that we're already starting to to see a bit of that in the market. Um, Leslie, I don't know if you can comment on that, but uh, how, do, how do you think the claimant community will will react if um, CPR 19.6 is looking like it's not an avenue? Well, I mean, you're right. There, you know, there are always um, people working on innovative ways of bringing claims. Um, Boundary Affairs, I think, was particularly interesting um, in that regard because the court was quite clear that that essentially it would not strike out the case on the basis that it wasn't an abuse of dominance, um, and it made reference to the fact that 102 is is uh, which is the abuse of dominance provisions under European law, and that um, the UK provisions of um, abusive dominance, they don't contain an exhaustive list or types of categories of abuse. And therefore, um, it's always possible for the court to find that there has been an infringement of competition law where um, the requirements are satisfied. Um, and I think in, in that case in particular, it made reference um, to the fact that um, for a dominant company operating an unfair selling system that may well constitute um, an abuse of dominance. And the, the law on what constitutes unfair trading conditions is in a state of development. So um, I think you may see that there are other claims that are brought under the competition rules, which, which rely potentially on the sort of wider um, non-exhaustive categories of abuse um, under Article 102 and, and Chapter 2. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree that the cat seemed to put quite a lot of weight on the fact that this is a developing area of law and therefore that it seems to suggest that there are going to be various different ways that people might get creative. So I think we'll start to see some really, well, start continue to see some really interesting cases um, coming out of that. Uh, well, my final question to you both, um, as I've already mentioned, we are waiting on CPA decisions in various cases, including uh, in trucks and FX. Uh, which I guess in theory could come uh, this side of uh, 2022. Um, but, th but then what? What do we think is next for the competition collective regime? Well, uh, I have to mention the two App Store cases that Housefeld is running. So we have um, two cases, one against Apple um, and one against Google, which relate to their pricing and conduct in their various app stores. So that's Apple's App Store and Google's Play Store. So what's known commonly as, as the Apple tax or the Google tax, which is the 30% commission, um, which is charged to app developers um, for purchases by individuals or, or any um, app user of um, 
apps themselves or when they're making purchases within apps. So that's commonly, for example, within a gaming app, you might be purchasing an upgrade or um, some skin or tokens or um, other upgrades to your to your game. Um, and those cases were filed earlier this year. So I suspect there'll be developments in both of those cases before the end of the year. Um, and then, of course, hot off the press this morning, um, Hasfeld filed its sixth collective action. So working, um, so this is a claim that is filed um, against Compare the Market, um, and it was brought um, relying on the CMA's infringement decision of November 2020 against um, Compare the Market, which found that it had infringed competition law through its use of what are called most favoured nation clauses. Um, and they've essentially prevented insurers from offering consumers lower prices on other price comparison websites. Um, and those proceedings um, were issued today. Um, and I suspect we'll see developments in that case then um, before the end of the year. Yeah, and I, I should probably say so Linklaters is, is uh, acting for Compare the Market on that one. So that'll be another, uh, that will be another situation where we are opposite you, Leslie. And look forward to seeing how that one progresses. Um, James, over to you for some horizon scanning. Well, I suppose it's worth a, a quick word on COVID and what that might mean for um, collective actions, um, particularly in the competition space. Um, I mean, it's, it's a bit early um, to say yet whether we're going to see a wave there, but I think there are good reasons to think that that we will see a number of claims crawling out the woodwork. I mean, just in terms of what COVID did to markets, um, it of course created unprecedented pressures for businesses, um, which if one um, adopts a cynical point of view, um, might cause businesses to, to coordinate in a way that they might not have done in, in a less stressful environment. Um, then there's the fact that there were just the relaxation of certain competition rules for certain businesses during COVID to, to help them survive. Um, and of course, readjusting from a, uh, a situation where you've been allowed to, to breach the, the normal rules is, is sometimes difficult. So, so you may see claims coming there. And then I suppose that the, the third factor that springs to mind is that, of course, some of the usual systems and controls which um, which monitor compliance with competition law and organisations have had to adapt during COVID as you know people have been at home, for example. So, um, as I say, very early days and these claims um, sometimes take time to crawl out the woodwork, but, um, but I wouldn't be surprised. Thanks very much, James and Leslie. Um, maybe we could do another one of these in a year's time and we can uh, we can see see if you're right, James. Uh, that brings us to the end of our third episode. Thank you so much to Leslie for joining us and for providing some really fascinating insights from a claimant perspective and especially to all of you for listening. If you're interested in finding out more, you'll find lots of helpful resources on competition litigation on the Linklater's website. Our next podcast will be on limitation and we hope that you'll join us for that. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch in the meantime, please do reach out to any one of us using the details on the Linklater's or Housefeld websites. Mm -hmm.